One of the things that I love about Christmas time is that Christmas marks for us um, as the church the beginning of what would become Christianity. Um, and we know whenever we gather together, especially on uh, occasions like this, um, there are people, um, many of you walked in from all over the room and all over the ideas and the spectrums of what you think, what you believe. Um, many of you have come here uh, and you are skeptical, just really unsure about God, unsure about Christianity. For some of you, you walked in and you've been walking into churches like this for years. And you've been walking to churches, in fact, longer than I've been alive. Um, and we're so glad that you're here and that you come here from a young whippersnapper like myself. And I have no doubt that you know all of this already. So let me just regurgitate what you already heard 75 times before. Um, but as, as, as we're here, um, we, <laughs> I feel like somebody, I think maybe somebody said amen at that point. So I appreciate that. Um, but wherever you are, the, the great thing about the Christmas story, again, is that it marked, um, whether you believe in Jesus or not, what would become one of the most monumental lives, what would become one of the most monumental movements, and in fact, world-influencing movements in the history of humanity. That is, when Jesus was born, it was like the little pebble that got kicked. And I say little pebble intentionally because it wasn't like God rolled this huge snowball and sent angels and all this stuff happened. We're going to read the story and how really unstrategic God was as he started this whole movement. But as this guy, um, who wasn't a guy at first, he was a little baby, was born into an extremely unlikely scenario, the world would change. And whatever you believe... Whether you believe it's true, whether you believe it's real, whether you believe there's a God, all of us can stand back and recognize that something significant happened when this little baby was born. Now, the great thing is as the writers of the New Testament, specifically a guy named Luke that we're going to read about tonight, wrote this, um, he didn't start it how many religions start a story of who was their founder or who was the kind of quintessential ideal person that began the faith. Um, many faiths start off something along the lines of in a place far away, in a land long, you know, a land far, far away, in a time long ago. And in fact, when you read the beginning of this um, story, in Luke, uh, this account in Luke chapter 2, um, Luke kind of begins with some similar language to that, but then drills down to some historical ideas of what happened. And in fact, Luke himself, many of you know this, perhaps you don't, um, Luke was a historian. When Luke writes the, the, the entire chapter, the entire book of Luke, um, he's writing to a buddy of his named Theophilus. Luke chapter 1, he says, most excellent Theophilus. There are many accounts, basically. There are many ideas. There are many versions of this story of Jesus, of Nazareth. But what we know is that Luke followed around some of the very, very influential people who followed Jesus themselves. And Luke would hear their accounts and he'd write them down. He would interview people and write it down. And Luke was not only a uh, historian, he was also a doctor. So he was very wise, very well respected in the community. And Luke says, I am writing to you that you may have an orderly account of that which you basically believe in. As he starts in Luke chapter 2, he says this. In those days... A decree went out. Now, again, of those days generic, in those days broad, in those days undefined. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now, I know many of you are, are incredibly savvy on Roman history and the history of the emperors and kings and things like that. So let me, just for those of us who aren't on your level, kind of explain why that is so significant. In other words, this didn't happen in an indeterminate period. This didn't happen somewhere long, long, far ago in the land far off. This happened when Caesar Augustus was in charge. He was the emperor. He was the end-all, be-all. Now, let me place it in some context outside of the Bible. Many of us have heard of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, who got you know, 
killed and a bunch of stuff happened. Well, before Julius Caesar was killed, um, this guy, Caesar Augustus, before he became Caesar Augustus, was a guy named Octavian. And Octavian was the great nephew. Let me try to connect those dots. So Octavian's grandma was Julius Caesar's sister. Julius Caesar's, Caesar was her brother. And Octavian was this really prominent, really successful, showed a lot of incredible uh, uh, capacity for leadership as a young man. And so as Octavian would grow up, Julius Caesar took notice. And what was common in their day is that a grandparent, when they would see a a, a kid or they would see a nephew or a niece or they would see somebody else's nephew or niece, they would adopt them as their own because they know what you know at Christmas time, which is you're around some of your kids and some of your kids, you're looking at them and you're like, you got it. You don't. You know, I don't know what happened in the parenting process. I don't know, you know. And in fact, you don't have it, and you don't have it, but your kid's got it. So, you know, in fact, my sister's husband's kid is fantastic. So, come on, you should come to the family dinner, not everybody else. And so, essentially, that's what Julius Caesar did. Julius Caesar adopted Octavian about a year before he was killed. And when, when Julius Caesar killed about a, was killed about a year later, the thought was there was going to be a long transition. He had many years of life and leadership. Yep, he was going to take and he was going to groom, and Octavian was going to be the next successor to Julius Caesar. But when Julius was killed, there all of a sudden became a civil war where the, the people who killed Julius went on one end, and Octavian and about three other guys went on the other end, and there became a civil war in Rome which was won by Octavian and the three guys that were, that were on his side. And they tried for a few decades to rule in a way that each of them had basically a third of the kingdom. But competing interests fell away, another civil war ensued, and Octavian, Caesar, became the emperor. And he went from Octavian Caesar to Caesar Augustus because Caesar Augustus made what would be a catalytic thing happen in Roman history, which is that they would be governed by an emperor, and all of a sudden Octavian was essentially the king. And so the name Augustus, Caesar Augustus, when he dropped the Octavian, meant Caesar the sacred, Caesar the great, Caesar the blessed. And so in other words, Luke said, come on, this isn't a far off place. This isn't a, you know, never ever land. This happened a little bit after Julius Caesar was killed. This happened after the Civil War happened. This happened at a time when there was beginning to be for the first time ever peace in Rome. And on top of that, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. In other words, let me just kind of drill down a little bit further, give you some more detail. We're not going to go into all how he became governor, though there is a story behind that too. This also happened by what Luke's saying. Okay, so you can go back and you can look at it. And again, Luke's writing to Theophilus. He's not writing to us. Theophilus was very familiar because he lived in the same country. He knew the, the history. He knew who the past presidents, who the past kings, who the past emperors had been. So he said, okay, remember back. It's kind of like for those of you guys who, you know, you're in here. And it's like, remember when Lawton Childs was governor? That's kind of what he's saying to him. Remember, you know, remember when Ion Sancho was the you know, supervisor of elections? You know, remember when Bush number one was president? Remember when Reagan was president? Remember when Nixon was president? You know, remember when, when you know, they had to go, oh, yeah, I remember. This is essentially what he's saying as he's saying, okay, Theophilus, remember back. Theophilus would say, yeah, yeah, I remember that. When Quirinius was governor of Caesar... And all went to be, went to, to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called 
Bethlehem. Now, backstory to launch into what we're going to talk about for the rest of the time here. If I were to like give this a, a, a subject or a title, it would be the strategically unstrategic start of the movement of God. It would be the way that God started this, which really honestly didn't make any sense. There's going to be a ton of different application for everybody, but we're just kind of going to sift through some ideas and some principles as we get, as we get there. But basically it starts off with Jesus, who was being formed in his mom's belly, we'll say for the kids in the room. You know, he was, he was being formed in his mom's belly, and as he's being formed, um, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, which was a crazy situation in itself, which we always think, man, that's so holy. Which if you're Joseph in that situation, you're thinking, right, 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 I, 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 I bet the Holy Spirit. You know, anyways, so, so, the, so the stork came down and made, you know, Mary pregnant. And as the stork came down and made Mary pregnant, there was this scandalous idea of her pregnancy because Joseph, who was dedicated to God, Mary, who was dedicated to God, this meant that everyone looked at him. And Joseph said, well, it's not mine, but it's somebody's. <laughs> And it's God's. And of course, all Joseph's friends are like, dude, are you serious? You're buying the whole God thing right now. That is outrageous. But nonetheless, Joseph, because of some intervention of some, you know, some angels, essentially, decided, okay, I am going to stick with this. I am going to stick this out. And so, all of a sudden, um, Caesar says, I'm going to count all my people. I want to know how many people I have. And so, everyone go to the city that you're from. Now, they went from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, this is probably the most overlooked part in the Christmas story. I was thinking about this mostly because of the fact that I have about an eight-and-a-half-month pregnant wife right now. Um, and she, we're, we're doing about three weeks for a little baby boy, which, you know, praise God. Um, but I'm sitting there thinking, this meant when she was about eight months pregnant, they had to travel 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem on a donkey. Probably took 20 to 30 days. Now, we have problems at the Kemper household if we sit on the couch too long. Mama's back starts getting uncomfortable. We got to, you know, it's rubs and, oh, I love you, you know. I mean, I want, seriously, if anybody has had a pregnant wife and you've been at that point where she's like, I, I, I love my child, but I hate the fact that my child is inside of me. I want to, you know, anything, get this thing out, get this thing out, get this thing out. The whole cute pregnancy part's over. The bump, oh, it's like I, this, I, have, I have a demon living inside of me, and I'm ready to get it out at this point. And so I want you to imagine this. So all of a sudden, you have to tell your wife, I love you, but if we're lucky, we have a donkey. That's just kind of the assumption. But perhaps they had to walk. A, I mean, you talk about swollen feet, ladies. Am I right? 80 miles, 90 miles, somewhere in that neighborhood, to this little town called Bethlehem. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus, what we find out later in the book of Matthew, and through some subsequent verses in Luke, even when he went there, they had to stay there for 40 days after Jesus was born because of her purification process. And even after that, there was a persecution that took place. And as that persecution took place specifically of Jesus, because Jesus heard, or Herod, who was in charge at the point, he was kind of the guy that was over uh, Quirinius, that was under Caesar. And Herod heard about this and said, you know what? This king of the Jews is a threat to my throne. And so they were exiled, ran into Egypt. In other words, Jesus was born a refugee. We don't think about that. Jesus was born a refugee. Now, come on. If you're God, would you send your son into a scandalous pregnancy 
Would you send your son into a scandalous pregnancy, into a time where the mother has to walk 80 miles and all the things that could go wrong, all the complications, all the issues that happen in pregnancy, the infant mortality within their day rate, that it wasn't even a rate because it was just so common. Now walk 80 miles. And I want you to be born as a refugee, exiled, unable to go home because of the persecution that you'll face from your governing authority. So nonetheless, they walk in this town of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, he being uh, the husband Joseph, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Now, a lot, a lot, a lot of theologians will look at it and say it's significant is the fact that she wrapped him. In other words, Jesus was probably born without family around. Jesus was probably born without the support system. Jesus was probably, it, it may have just been Mary and Joseph in a field somewhere giving birth to the Savior of the world. No support system, no family, no group, no everybody's in the hospital We're just waiting on pins and needles. And Mom, you can go home. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you when it's time. Mom, you know, I'm staying, I'm staying. Well, 13 hours later, Mom, I told you, you should have gone home. There was none of that for Jesus. It was separation. And so as he's born, she gave birth, verse 7, to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Now, I love that, that word manger because when I was young, it would say, you know, away in a manger, no room for, you know, the little, come on, let's sing it together. Lord Jesus laid down his sweet, yeah, yeah, there you go, thank you, thank you, you don't have to sing anymore, good enough. When I heard that, I would think, man, this is like, this is like God's version of Pinterest, you know, it was this cute little barn that he was born in, and it was this manger, and, and, and he was actually really comfortable, because everybody's seen the pictures, and the pictures all have this thing of straw, and this little kind of like bassinet, it's a wood bassinet, you know, and that's how we view it. A manger, in case you didn't know, is a feeding trough. Now, those of you in here from Wakulla, you know what that is, you know, Perry, stand up, you know what that is. You have seen, I mean, you wouldn't watch, I mean, for most of us who are parents, we don't bring our kids in public for 30 days till they've had all their immunizations, and everybody better wash their hands with, you know, in fact, their entire body with sanitizer. Jesus was born and immediately put into a feeding trough. The Savior of the world was born and put into a feeding trough. Now, there's some cool things that happen next. Because all of a sudden, this just normal birth explodes with extraordinary spiritual connotations. So this is what happens as that has happened. And in the same region, verse 8, there were shepherds out in the field. Shepherds, by the way, did not have a good reputation. If you have um, a company, perhaps some of you are, are business owners, um, the shepherd's like the guy who does like the sanitation in the meat company. He's like the guy that's like, okay, we've got all the high-caliber people. He's going to be with the sheep. So that was the shepherd. They just were kind of wayward, the best way to describe it. Keeping watch over their flock by night, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Because let's all be honest, if we were there, and we were in the middle of a field, and we were just the lowest of the low on the org chart in whatever organization or company you're in, and you're sitting there, and a whole bunch of angels show up. We're all needing a new change of clothes when the angels disappear. Because that would be terrifying. So the angels show up. There's a great fear. 
And the angel said to them, fear not. Why? Because they were scared. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born the day, this day, in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in a swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a great angel and a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying. So all of a sudden, this, these angels, more angels show up. And there's this eruption of a choir that sings glory to God in the highest and on the earth. Peace among those whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven... The shepherds said to one another, and this is how you know the shepherds weren't the brightest tools in the shed. Because it would have been obvious to us as, as, at the end of that, you know, for those of you guys, you know, you've been to school, you've graduated high school, graduated college, we just said, let's go. They said to each other, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. In other words, hey, so do y'all still want to go? I mean, I know that whole angel thing was pretty cool, but are, are you in? And so they all decided, okay, we're going to cumulatively go and we're going to go to this thing that happened, which the Lord has made known to us, verse 16. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph with the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, now if you're a parent, this is where you correct the Bible and you say him. It's not an it, it's a him. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying God and praising God for all they had heard and seen, and as it had been told to them. And at the end of the eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus for the name given by the angels before he was conceived in the womb. Now, what happens as the angels erupt, as the shepherds go and as the shepherds see, the shepherds start to spread the word that there was this guy, there was a savior born. But here's what you may not know about shepherds. Shepherds were considered so unreliable. Shepherds could not legally testify in a court of law because they were notorious for lying. If you or I got into a conflict and we called somebody in and somebody said, nope, they're a shepherd, that's, uh, that'd be, that would be the end of the story. They can't testify. They can't do anything. So let me just say this. God sent his one and only son into a scandalous marriage, into a scandalous pregnancy, to be born after extraordinary circumstances for a pregnant woman to go through, being born as a refugee, laid in a feeding trough, and witnessed to by people who had absolutely no credibility. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Here's where God and I are different parents, which is probably a shortcoming on my part, if we're all being honest. But I want what's best for my kid. I want what's absolute. I mean, come on. I want, I want them to have every advantage. I want them to have every toy. I want them to have every, I mean, come on, education. I want them to go to the best school. I don't care how much it costs. I want them to have the best opportunities. I want to set them up for success. I mean, I want, I want, I want. I want to do everything that I can for my child to prove to my child that not just I love them, but that they can do anything, they can become anything, that they have the power and the ability and the capacity to do whatever they want. But God saw his one and only son, which is just a crazy, I mean, 
simply the simplicity of God becoming one of us, the, the, the simplicity in the dichotomy of God becoming one of us, God, holy God, God who sustains all things, as, as the Bible says, by the power of his mighty word, God who, who in Colossians 1.19 says, in him, in Jesus, the fullness of God. So you think of everything about God, you think of the fullness of God, you think of the greatness of God, you think of the glory of God, you think of the holiness of God that John saw in Revelation chapter 1, and he fell over as dead. You see, think of the glory of the God who in the Old Testament, if anybody were to see it face to face, would die. The fullness of that God came to planet Earth. That is just, I mean, if we stop there, and he is born as an adult, he comes as an adult, that is crazy in and of itself. But that he, God, would send himself to planet Earth to be born into a scandalous marriage in a small town in the middle of nowhere. Through a difficult pregnancy, born as a refugee, laid in a feeding trough, that God would send his son to be put in a feeding trough and to be witnessed to by people who no one would believe. But you know why he did that? Because of you and because of me. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And he didn't send his son on the cloud with angels to come and lay waste to the place. To say, I am here and I am God. He did not pull the God card, though he could have. He sent his one and only son for sinners, for people like you and me. Because let's be honest. If Jesus was born high and mighty, we would have a God that we could not identify with. We would have a God that we would still look to, that we would say, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my God, in a holy way. But not in a God who can identify with us in every way. Because when God came to the earth, he wasn't like every other prophet in any religion considering the old or including the old testament that would say god is near 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 that for the first time in history god would come down and take the very bottom rung of the ladder so that anybody and everybody no matter who you are no matter where you're from no matter what you've been through no matter what your background is no matter the sinfulness no matter the sense of culture where perhaps you look at everybody else and you feel like everybody else is above you everybody else is ahead of you everybody else has a farther start they were born into families that you weren't born into and they were born into some senses and some some constraints in their culture that they just had an advantage over you and you look at that and you think i could never get to god i could never be with god like they are with God because of where I'm from, that anybody and everybody could look at God, and God would not simply say, I am near, but for the first time in history would say, I am here, and I am accessible to everyone, and I'm not simply going to send my son into the world. To be laid in a trough. But he's going to come to the world. He's going to identify with the world. 
He is going to preach to the world. He is going to heal. But eventually, he's not simply going to be born in a trough, but he's going to die on a cross for the sins of the world. So that anybody, in everybody, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, no matter what family you were born into, no matter what city you were born into, no matter what country you were born in, would have access to a God who loves and serves and gave his life. And that when he died on the cross, he took the punishment that we should have taken. He took the wrath that we should have taken. He took the judgment that we should have taken because of the times that we, like the nation of Israel, over and over and over have rebelled against God. And he took the punishment that we should have taken and paid but couldn't and died for us. So that we now have an opportunity to be right with God, a God who loves us, a God who identifies us, a God who is not simply God, but a God who is our heavenly Father and calls us into a relationship with him where we are made right with God not simply because he's near but because he came here as a disadvantaged baby boy and died for the sins of the world in a second we're going to sing a song and I just love to end probably, I don't know if we'll do this every Christmas service we ever do, but this is just, this is my favorite Christmas song. And not just because I like the tune, I think the tune's catchy. Let me tell you why. At the beginning of the song, um, O Holy Night, there's a, there, there, there's a progression of thought that I just identify with so much. And this is what the words say. Long lay the world... Long lay the world in sin and error, pining. Long lay the world. For a long time, the world had laid in its own sin, its own filth, its own muck, its own decisions, its own rebellion against God. Similar to you and I, because we all, no matter how holy you are or how unholy you are when you walked in here, all have sin in our life. And so he says, long lay the world in sin and error, Pining, pining, huge word, means hoping, waiting. Hoping that perhaps God hasn't turned his back on me. Hoping that perhaps God hasn't gone away from me. Hoping that perhaps I haven't gone too far. Long lay the world in centenary pining. Till he appeared. And for the first time, the soul felt its worth. Because the thrill of hope. The thrill that perhaps I can be made right with God. The thrill that perhaps there's hope in my situation. There's hope in spite of where I'm from, in spite of what I've done, in spite of my social status, in spite of my occupation or my lack of an occupation. There is hope that the weary world rejoices for yonder brings a new and glorious birth. So maybe for you, The best present that you get this Christmas is simply knowing that you have hope. That you have access to a heavenly father who started work worse off than you did. 
and can absolutely identify and understand where you're coming from. And that saw us in our sin. Saw us hoping that there was something more to life than what we were experiencing. And sent his one and only son. And perhaps for you for the first time ever, you'll experience the thrill of hope. Your weary soul will rejoice because you now have access, forgiveness, and a right relationship with your heavenly Father. So here's how we're going to end tonight. We're going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song. We're not going to do any hands raised, you know, head bowed, stand up, come forward. Here's how we're going to end. We're going to sing a song. And before that, we're going to pray, and I'm just going to invite you. If that's you, and perhaps you walked in, and you didn't have hope. The sin in the air was just weighing. That you thought maybe that there was a God who was so much more holy that he had no clue what you have been through. But he has been through that and worse. He did it without sinning, which none of us can do, which makes him the perfect sacrifice for us. And so for the first time, you can place your faith, your hope, your trust in a God who loved us, came down in recordable history, and died for us. Died for you and died for me. That we could have the thrill of, of hope. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for your son who you sent into the world for us. God, it's frankly even inconceivable how the fullness of God, the fullness of you, the fullness of the God who sustains everything by the power of his mighty word. God, your fullness was pleased to dwell in your son, Jesus. Your fullness was pleased to dwell in a trough. Your fullness was pleased to dwell as a servant. Your fullness was pleased to dwell as a refugee. Your fullness was pleased to dwell as a scandalous pregnancy. Your fullness was pleased to dwell as a scandalous marriage. Your fullness was pleased to dwell with witnesses that no one believed. But God, you did that to serve us. You did that so that no matter who would come, who would believe, we can all identify with you. And so if that's you and you're in here, and maybe for the first time tonight, but maybe, maybe for you, you're coming back and it's the first time in a long time. And you've, been, you've walked away from God and you've been in sin and you've been all kinds of stuff and you just want to walk away from that and return to your heavenly Father who said, I am not simply near you, I am here with you. And I invite you to pray this with me. Jesus, come be my Lord. Be my Savior. Thank you for not simply being near, but for coming here. Thank you for taking the punishment that I should have taken. Dying on the cross to forgive me of my sins. 
I place my faith, my hope, and my trust in you. So come be my Lord and be my Savior. And God, for the first time, or for the first time in a long time, help me to understand, to feel, and to experience the thrill of hope as my soul rejoices that it has met its Savior who it has longed to meet for so long. So be my Lord. Be my Savior. Amen.